Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are here once again as one people, praising your name, worshiping you on this beautiful Sabbath day. And also, Lord, we are here. Easter is, has arrived. We thank you for the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. That in Jesus Christ, we do have eternal life. And because he is alive, we may have life everlasting. Please be with us now, Lord, as we continue to worship together as one family, despite the limitations of, imposed on us by this wicked disease. And let your spirit be in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's, uh, good morning, everyone. This, it, it feels weird to be sitting in, in this chair, in this study alone, and uh, talking to a camera. Only six Sabbaths ago, you will remember that uh, you were all sitting in the pews, and I could see all of you. Now I can't see a single person. I see a few individuals on Zoom with me. I see um, Ken, the Genobagas, and Allingtons, at least their screens. And today, all the pews are empty, and you're all home. Only Scott and I are here at church, and I'm not even in the sanctuary, as you can see behind me. I'm in the pastor's study here at church. You know, this lockdown is getting old really fast. But we're all making the personal sacrifices of staying home and being obedient to the authorities, restricting our movements for the most part voluntarily, and keeping our social distance, and self-isolating and all of those things. We're simply doing our share in trying to slow down the spread of this disease. To give our doctors, our nurses, our health professionals, our um, hospitals a fighting chance. They too, we must remember, are making their sacrifice. By going to work, they risk getting infected and losing their own lives, co-worker, relative. Out of all of these people infected, about 50,000 cases are serious or critical. And as we speak, the number is rising, but around 100,000 precious souls have already perished. Here in our country, we have had over 6,000 deaths and rising. I was checking the news last night and it says that uh, today we saw for the very first time the death or yesterday of 2,000 of our own countrymen and women. We have become therefore the epicenter of this epidemic. A full third of total cases worldwide is here in our country. We have a full third of it, 500,000 and, and rising of our, our countrymen and women are infected. And it is increasing at the rate of 25,000 new infections every day. And the worst of it is that we're still on the front side of this bell curve, as they tell us. We have yet to peak, like other countries have peaked. This country, or this pandemic, is causing the worst economic crisis, they say, since the Great Depression. 
Last week alone, we are told that 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment. Over 16, 16 million have filed in just the last month, 16 million. And this is our story. We're all in it together. And while we're distracted, while our eyes are fixed on COVID-19, checking up on the news every single time, something happened. Easter snuck up on us. And can anyone wonder why? And we're not, of course, laying blame on you know, anybody. It, it's here. What does it matter? It's here. And you know, Easter couldn't have come at a better time to refresh our spirits, to, to remind us that nothing in this world, nothing in this world can outpace, outdistance, outwork the love of God. Borrowing from the words of the Apostle Paul and giving it a little bit of uh, creative license here, we can say where COVID-19 increased, grace increased even more. The onslaught of COVID-19 is being met everywhere by acts of kindness, miracles in and of themselves. And the irony of it all is that we feel closer to each other somehow in many ways despite the social distancing and despite self-isolation. Where COVID-19 increased, grace increased even more. The other day, I called my two friends uh, who've been my friends since I was a little kid. And uh, they often tease me, these friends of mine, because they're often the ones calling me and I hardly call them. Well, I called them the other day. One is stuck on a cruise ship off the coast of Florida, and the other is in LA. And I called my family and, and checked up on them. And my mother, sister, and my brother-in-law just arrived yesterday from the Philippines. They were there for over a month. They were supposed to be on vacation over there. And as soon as they got there, the whole island was put on a lockdown. And they were, because they had come from a country that's worse off than the Philippines at that time and still is, they were forced into a quarantine. And so they had to spend their entire vacation time locked up in their own home there in the Philippines. But they're home now, and, and so I can breathe a sigh of relief. So now they're on uh, self-isolation for two weeks there in San Diego. And of course, I decided, as many of you have, I'm sure, these days, to, uh, you know, to start baking. I haven't baked bread, more bread, then, you know, in, in, in recent memory, I, and I'm enjoying it, and I want to give some of it away. Anybody want some COVID-19-inspired cinnamon rolls? Give me a call, and I'll deliver it to your front door wearing a mask and, a med and medical gloves. But seriously, seriously, today we celebrate Easter. Today, God reminds us that Jesus is alive. He is risen. And the message of, of, of Easter is that not only is Jesus risen, but he is present with us, with his people, through the Holy Spirit, in our struggles. And even more, as we now go into the message of today in Revelation chapter 3, we find that not only is Jesus Christ present, but it's, he makes, he tailor makes his presence to fit our current needs. That is what we find in Revelation 
1 to 3. Have you noticed that Jesus never appears the same way twice to any of the churches in Revelation? And so far, we've today we're seeing the fifth church. Last week, we saw the sixth church. Where, um, each church has been privileged so far, and I have a feeling that, uh, you know, uh, it's going to be the same all the way to the seventh church. Each church, and by um, extension, each person is privileged to see uh, with seeing that part of Jesus Christ that fits their need. What this tells us is that the grace of God is not a one-size-fits-all. Jesus comes to us, and we see him through the prism of our experience, our suffering, our need. That is the grace of God. So now, today, he comes to the fifth church, to Sardis. Last Sabbath, as I said, Pastor D. Ray talked about the sixth church, Philadelphia. The church that had been so weakened and reduced to a very small size. So weakened, as it were, by constant attrition of people leaving the church. And, and in that church, Jesus Christ chooses to focus on those that remain. And those that remain, we find to be, uh, Jesus Christ recognizes them as being very extremely faithful to God. And because of that, he promised them that he would throw the doors open for them and with endless possibilities. And he even promises that where I open doors, nobody will be able to shut it. Today, we're taking a step back. Because, as you know, I missed preaching the sermon on the, on the Sabbath we canceled church over a month ago. So we're, we're stepping back a week, or at least eight, one church back. Today, we get to see Jesus drawing near to a church, get this, to a church that had a good reputation, and a church that believed in its own reputation. In Sardis, we find a church that is all image, no substance, Christian only by name. Vibrant, but dead. How did Sardis get to be this way? What will it take for anyone afflicted with the Sardis disease? Maybe we could call it Sardis COVID disease. To turn around, to make it turn around and live again. What can we learn from Sardis so that we too may win with Jesus Christ? who has already won for us. So right now, I want you to turn your Bibles to um, Revelation chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 6. So I'm going to give you a little bit of time to go grab your Bibles, and uh, we will read together. I'll be reading from my own Bible, the New Revised Standard Version. And here it is. Revelation chapter 3. Verses 1 to 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect, Perhaps the better word there is complete. 
in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed with the, like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen. So we ask the question again. How is it possible that Sardis get to be this way? And if you look at the churches, the previous churches, there is a progression here that, that seems to be happening. And that is to say that, uh, you know, when you go back to Revelation chapter 1 and you see, the, you know, the condition, the spiritual condition of the, the first church, the, the church in Ephesus, it was a united church. It was a very active church, and a church that uh, was united in, in, in its witness to Jesus Christ. Well, it, it did have one problem. And that one problem Jesus Christ was trying to address, and that he was saying to them, hey, look, listen, you need to, to keep loving people. Don't, you know, don't be so uh, uh, into orthodoxy to the point where you're questioning any, everybody and you, you're showing that you're becoming hard-hearted and, and you're stopping to love the people that I have called you to love. By the time we get to the second church in Smyrna, we find that that church... Uh, Jesus Christ finds that church also united, and this is, by the way, the one of the two churches where Jesus Christ does not give any negative critique. The second one being Philadelphia. Here in Smyrna, Jesus Christ finds a church that is being persecuted and is about to enter a period of persecution, and Jesus Christ says to them, hey, listen, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So they approve of their witness. He approves of their witness there in Smyrna. This is a strong church, as Ephesus was as well, a strong church. But by the time we get to Pergamum and Thyatira, we see those churches beginning to show signs of, of spiritual decay. And there in Pergamum, we see that there is a division. A division is, is, a, uh, is starting to, uh, 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 to take place, albeit in Pergamum, in the third church, uh, the division uh, is still in its infancy, and only a few individuals were leaving or questioning the faith that Jesus Christ has handed them. By the time we get to Thyatira, the church is split down the middle. And now we get to Sardis. And the reverse has happened in Sardis. If in Pergamum we have the minority leaving the church or losing their faith in Jesus Christ, in Sardis only a few are remaining faithful to Jesus Christ. So we ask the question once again, how did it happen? What, what can we find in, in, in Jesus Christ's message to this church here in our text that would at least help us to understand what their problem was? And 
why how Jesus Christ wants to deal with their problem. Maybe by doing so, by by finding some of these uh, answers, uh, answers to these questions, we we will be able to help ourselves if in case we get into a similar situation. And, and the answer to our question is found at the very beginning of Jesus' message to them. When Jesus says, I know your works, he says, you have a name. The answer is found in their name, their reputation. As Jesus once again says, you have a name of being alive, but, but he says, but you are dead. That is to say, there's a discrepancy here. There's a discrepancy between their reputation, their name, because that's what it means, reputation, name, or even witness. There's a discrepancy between their reputation as the world sees them and their reputation as Jesus sees them. Their reputation, as, as I just mentioned, is synonymous with their witness. The words name and reputation mean the same thing here. Um, and their, their name and their reputation is their de facto witness, right or wrong. That is what they're presenting themselves to the world. What seems to have happened here in Sardis is that the Christians in this church, in this city, when faced with a fork on the road, took the easy road, the worldly road. What we have here is a church that cared more about the, how the world sees it, cared more about building its own name out in the world rather than building its name before God. And because they've done that, and they must have made, you know, this, this must have been happening for quite some time. As, as I told you, um, Sardis is in the more advanced stage of Pergamon and of uh, Thyatira. We could see probably that uh, uh, Pergamum is, you know, the early, it's in the early stages and, and, and Sardis is in the later stages and Thyatira is somewhere in between. There is a trajectory, a downward tra trajectory here. By the time we get to Sardis, most of the members have become Christians only by name. It's a sad, sad state of event. How can it be so close to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ? And you have this happening already. And you know, it's not as though Sardis did not have the benefit of Jesus' message, messages to the other churches. As a matter of fact, all of these messages were read together as one. And the message of Jesus to one church is the message to the other churches. And it, it's, it's, the messages are for the entire group of churches, for the entire church, past, present, and future. Sardis would have had the benefit, of course, of reading Jesus' letters to the previous four churches ahead of it. And they would have found what Jesus', Jesus expectation of them to be absolutely clear. And it, they would not have missed it. To love people and hate their sin to give themselves wholly, completely, even if it costs them their life, to resist every pressure to become one with the world. Pergamum is the early stages of this disease. 
A minority of believers have assumed this new kind of reputation in the world. And Jesus urged them to fight for the soul of their church and nip the problem in the bud before it's too late. Thyatira is more advanced in stage. There in this church, the split is down the middle. As a matter of fact, the majority have already left the church. And now Sardis, is a, now what we see in Sardis is a wholesale disregard of faithfulness to Jesus Christ as Jesus defines faithfulness. We don't get to define what faithfulness means. Jesus gets to define it for us. Our task is to follow what Jesus says. And it says in our text today that only a few names remain faithful to Jesus Christ. The rest have left their works. They left their works like somebody, you know, leaving, uh, leaving their works unfinished, like somebody maybe, uh, you know, working uh, somewhere, somewhere down there in, uh, uh, you know, down, down the streets and, you know, digging up uh, in the streets. And then all of a sudden they leave their work and they're nowhere to be found. That's exactly what Jesus Christ is saying. Hey, where's, your, where's everybody? I can just imagine Jesus Christ here showing up in their church and saying, hey, the pews are empty. Where's everybody? Abandoned. They have abandoned their witness to make a name for themselves in the world. More interested, we say, in making a name for themselves than making a name for God. And we all, you know, we all make, you know, we, we, we all uh, want to make a name for ourselves. I mean, I, we all have our hopes and aspirations, our dreams. I do. I know you do. To leave behind, at least for me, a legacy for my family, for my kids. I want to make a name for myself that uh, when daddy says something, he, he, he does it. And, and that's why you will remember I made a promise to my daughter uh, some years back to build her a, a, um, a tree house. And I kept my promise and overdid it. <laughs> and I can't imagine how I did I put that together, but with some help, I was able to do it. So we all want to leave behind a legacy in our family, at work, at school, in our chosen vocation, to want to leave behind some footprint of ourselves that, hey, listen, I, I, was, I, bit, I was here and I made a difference. So that others may know that we had been here and that, you know, that uh, we were a service to people and we mattered to people. And there's, no, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make a name for ourselves in this way, to fulfill our dreams, becoming somebody someday. I still have this dream that someday I will write a book. My wife knows about this. I will write a book. This is the year I will write the book and I will be known far and wide. A person with no dream, is a person with no passion in life. And a person with no passion in life has not begun to live. Do you agree? We all have dreams. And we all want to pursue our dreams with all our soul, our might, and our strength. 
and to build a name for ourselves and hopefully not sacrifice our faith in God. But you know, our desire to build a name for ourselves becomes a hindrance when we neglect our relationship with God or when we are too willing to cut corners perhaps or to uh, give ourselves a break perhaps from our spiritual life. When we let our spiritual life suffer, when we begin to make ex exceptions to obeying the wishes of our God, where he puts us. Jesus had no problem really with Sardis gaining quite a reputation in their city. It's just that what he had a problem with is that this reputation masks their true spiritual condition and that their reputation is in fact the exact opposite of their true spiritual condition. That is where the problem lies. How much do you want your name to grow in this world? Are you prepared to exchange your soul for a good name? I was watching a movie uh, not too long ago about the life of a a modern Christian martyr. His name was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The title of the, uh, the movie, it's a, uh, kind of like a, a, a biography of, uh, of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the title of the, the, the film uh, is uh, Bonhoeffer, Agent of Grace. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian and uh, who had to face the hard reality of living in Germany when his own government had become pure evil. And so he, you know, he, he was, you know, you know in, he had a dilemma. He is a pastor, a theologian, and what to do now with this Hitler and the Nazis, his own government. And he decided to resist Hitler and join the German resistance and plot to kill, to assassinate the head of his own government because he said you know he had he had lost all right to govern he had usurped or he had uh, corrupted his own authority and so he decided among many things to you know to, to conspire to kill hitler and of course you know they didn't succeed in this history we find out in history they made several attempts but they were unsuccessful he also decided to help as many jews as possible and he made quite a name of of himself in the underground church, in the confessing church in Germany in those days. And of course, through his writings, and some of them, some of those writings are, are classic today. It's worth reading. There was a scene in that, in that uh, film in which a Jewish spinster whom Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, and, and his fellow conspirators were, were helping. They were all, you know, German soldiers in, in the Abwehr, the uh, intelligence department of, of the German military. They were helping these, um, these uh, Jews uh, uh, escape and sending them to wherever, uh, Switzerland and other places. And of course they had to, they had to uh, do a lot of deceiving, deception. There's a lot of deceptions and lies and false papers and stuff like that. And, and then, so in comes one of these, one of those they're trying to help, this, uh, um, this spinster, old spinster lady. 
And she sees this and she refuses. She almost refuses to be helped by them because there's so much to see. There's so much lies, she says. And so she turns to Dietrich Wanhofer and she says, Dietrich, so much deception, so much lies. And then she grabs her by, by his shoulders, him by his shoulders, and, and, and she says, Dietrich, don't win the war, only to lose your soul. And this is the dilemma, a similar dilemma we face today in, in our world, in your world, in mine. How do we make a name for ourselves without losing our soul? How do we make a name for ourselves that God would approve? Because Jesus says, what will, it, what will it profit a man or a woman if he gains the world and loses his or her own soul? Or what will a man or a woman give, give in exchange for his or her own soul? Are we ready? Are we ready to exchange one for the other? Many in Sardis in their day did it. Whether they did it consciously or they did it in just a, you know, uh, just kind of a, in a sleepy kind of a, the sleep, they slept, walk into oblivion. I don't know. We, we don't know. We will find out someday when we get to heaven. But we all face a similar dilemma today, whether it is in our field of work, how not to lose our soul when faced with the politics and the economics of our profession, when maybe you find that your bosses are more concerned about their dollars, how much they get to keep, rather than taking care of their own, of their own workers. We face this at school, how not to lose our soul when faced with peer pressure to accept what is wrong to not rock the boat. We face this when personal ambition gets in the way of being a team player, perhaps. We face this dilemma every time we get on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We face this dilemma every time we plan our life, five years, five years ahead, 10 years ahead, 15 years ahead. What will a man exchange? Will it, what is a man or a woman willing to exchange for his or her own soul? Every day we face this dilemma, this temptation of gaining the world without, uh, and, and without losing our soul. I tried to explain this years ago. Um, when uh, my son was still very uh, small. As a matter of fact, I think he was about around five years old. And, uh, you know, those, those early years in your child's life, you see their innocence and you get, you, their innocence and you, and you get to enjoy those, those, those times. But as a parent, you get to see as well the inevitability of the world kind of gaining a foothold in your children's life. And as parents, it's, you know, we find that, you know, we can probably delay things, delay the, 
you know, the innocence of our, you know, of, of our children uh, or, or, or keeping their innocence a little while, a little bit longer, but we can never, never keep our children from falling into sin. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. So one day, I, one night, I tried to explain to my, my, my son that he has choices to make. And, and he had just recently, at that time, discovered my iPhone. And, um, you know, a couple of things he did on the iPhone that uh, wasn't, he wasn't supposed to do. And, and so I explained to him, I sat him down and one night and I, I took my iPhone and, and I told him, son, do you remember the story of Adam and Eve, how they took that one fruit? And I said to him, when you hold this phone, it's as if you have taken that fruit in your hand and the whole world is before you. And what you do with that fruit will have an impact in the way your life will, will be lived from here on. The whole world is in this phone. What name do I want for myself where I do not want? To lose my soul. Or where I do not lose my soul. And how can we make a turnaround then? If you know, once we get in this situation. And, and, and uh, you know. Um, Jesus gives us uh, five things. And I'm going to go through this really quickly. First of all. You know, you, we, when we go back to the. To the um, to the beginning of this text, we find that, you know, the key always, the key always, and when you get in certain situations to, is to understand what kind of Jesus you would need to get yourself out of that situation. How would Jesus Christ, you know, what resources from our Lord Jesus Christ would you need to get yourself out of that situation? And this is why, really, this is the amazing thing about how Jesus Christ reveals himself to the different churches. He tailor makes it to their needs. And here, Jesus Christ, the key here is to understand Jesus Christ as the only one that can restore your spirits back into you. Because he says, he says, I'm the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Of course, you know, the seven spirits of God is not seven different spirits, but the, the, the totality, the, the, you know, the, the, the perfect spirit of God. Jesus Christ possesses that, he says. He will give it to you, and he will revive you. And, and, and he says, look, I hold the spirit in one hand, so to speak. I have, I have all of it complete, and I'm willing to revive you and resuscitate you. Because I also hold the seven stars. That would mean the entirety of God's people. You, I hold you in the hollow of my hand. And if you will let me, I will bring you back to life. I will bring that lost piety back into you. And I, if you will let me, if you will let me, I will revive you. 
and I will give you a name better than what you've been wanting all your life. A name that I will not be embarrassed or ashamed to confess before my father. That's a much better name than whatever name you can ever achieve here on earth. Then he says, that's the first thing you need to do is you need to, you need to be able to see, you need to be able to see me as the one, the only one that can do that for you. Otherwise, if you don't, there's no help for you. And then he gives, he gives us, us five things. He says, well, okay, well, the next thing you need to do is you need to wake up. Stop, you know, stop sleepwalking your way through life. Wake up. Do you ever sleepwalk and find yourself in another room in the middle of the night? Worse yet, I've heard of horror stories of people sleepwalking and leaving the house and getting in potentially in a lot of trouble. So Jesus Christ, he's the first thing he says is wake up. And then he says, strengthen what remains. That's number two. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Start reprioritizing your spiritual life and start, start making God and your ambitions, making God first in your life and your ambitions second in your life. And God will fulfill everything your heart would desire. Third, he says, remember what you received and heard. Once again, let us remember, remembering is the most basic form of piety. Without remembering, there's nothing you can do. If you're forgetting everything God has done for you and you're not remembering what he's done for you, then um, there's nothing, you know, you will not be, remember, you know, this word remembrance is an emotive word. It's, 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 a, it's, it's an emotional word. It, it's remembering, it's not just up here. When you're remembering the goodness of God, when you're remembering how God has you know, has, has led you through in your life and has, has taken you out of a lot of messes in your life. And you remember all the, those things, then your mind and your heart will go back to God and you will be able to, you'll be able to start anew with him. And, and, and by the way, it is remembrance. It's also God's way also. Remembrance actually is also the basis of God's goodness and, and, and grace. It precedes his goodness. When he remembered when he remembered uh, Noah and his family, then he saved them. He is mindful of you and me. So he says, remember what you have received and heard. And then he says, obey it. Very simple things, really. Nothing, nothing new here, nothing earth shattering that we don't already know. And obeying really means to obey what we have heard and received and heard. Remembering is one thing, but you need to make the next step, take the next step. And then he says, finally, he says, from sleepwalking, you need to then wake up. And then once you're awake, he says, turn around. Make your way back to me, and I will be there with you, and I will accept you. And you know, you know what? This is the story of the prodigal son. This is basically what Jesus, what's, what Jesus Christ is, is saying here in in, in in more ways than one. Because the, 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 the son that left and was dead, when he came back and he realized that he had been sleepwalking and, and, and that he made the turnaround and he started heading back, the father accepted him 
no questions asked. And he restored him. And he gave him all the birthrights and all the blessings that he did not deserve. And he welcomed him back to his family. Folks, don't get hung up on making a name for yourself in this world. Make a name for yourself that will last the test of time. Make a name for yourself that God, that God would accept and God would not be embarrassed to confess. And Jesus Christ says, if you conquer, you will be included with those few individuals that still remain in your church uh, there in Sardis. He almost, I could almost read in this, in this story, Jesus Christ saying, hey, look, one of the things you really should do is once you make a turn, just go back to that church and start helping those few individuals that are still, still in that church and grow that church again and, and make a name for yourself for me in that city and make Sardis, the church in Sardis, great again. No pun intended. In Jesus Christ. Make a name for yourselves. To the glory of God. And you will have a name that will stand the test.